0: This episode is the second part of episode 5 understanding God's righteousness and in this episode Brother Jim will um, be looking at the second part of our last judgment will it actually be 10 years from the resurrection to the judgment to the immortalization of the Saints will the dead be raised for judgment long before the living are called to judgment where were the two silver trumpets calling for the assembly to stand before god why were there those two how is the judgment will not be interrupted by journalists or the american military or any other military for that matter so all these questions are dealt with within this episode so i hope you enjoy it god bless
1: Our previous considerations in reference to understanding God's righteousness began to examine those features of his rightness in relation to our impending judgment, which will not be God's final judgment, but it will be our final judgment. We considered some timing issues in relation to our judgment, that this judgment will take place at some point within the next 10 years. We also noted that the dead will precede the living, in the judgment order. This is reasonable understanding from both logical and spiritual perspectives. There is a dramatically greater number of those who are dead, who are accountable to our Creator's vindication, than there are living at this time. And from a spiritual perspective, the divine principle is that death precedes life. Paul highlights this principle of death preceding life when he was correcting the growing apostasy within the Corinthian ecclesia in reference to the doctrine of resurrection. They were brethren in the truth, contradicting the promise of resurrection and questioning the nature of immortality. Paul addresses both categories of resurrection in his explanation in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. Both that first resurrection back to mortality, that reawakening for the purpose of judgment, as well as the second resurrection, to immortality following judgment. Mistaking these two separate resurrection categories has resulted in more than one fellowship separation. The Church of God of the Abrahamic Faith maintained an insistence that the that the, uh, the only resurrection category was immortalization. And therefore, they originally taught the concept of immortal emergence, that only the faithful would be resurrected from the grave, and that they could be immortal upon their res- reconstruction from the grave. This was partially based on misunderstanding Paul's definition of the salvation process he describes in 1 Corinthians 15 as being scheduled immediately at the point of being raised from the grave. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 51, we shall, we shall not all sleep, in other words, we are all going to die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed." For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. It was incorrectly assumed these words applied to both categories of resurrection, as opposed to exclusively the resurrection to immortality from mortality after judgment, that only the approved of Christ would be raised from the grave all the way to immortality. This fellowship-separating misunderstanding, eliminating the judgment process, was also empowered by the false presumption that there would be no vindication of God's righteousness in those raised only to be rejected and perish forever. This oversimplification mistake of presuming that there's there's only one resurrection category was also evident in the fellowship separation of the unamended, as opposed to the amended divisions. It was inappropriately promoted that the terms for participating in the resurrection to immortality following judgment actually applied to the resurrection to mortality before judgment, based on the mistake of presuming that there is only one resurrection application, and not recognizing the foundational purpose of the resurrection to judgment being the vindication of God's righteousness. So, recognizing the significant context in Paul's testimony to the Christadelphians at Corinth on this subject of resurrection, let's listen to how he addresses this issue of death before life in the context of resurrection. If we drop down to verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15, we read, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. And there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening, or life-giving, spirit. Howbeit, that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural. And afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven this issue of natural before spiritual adam before christ natural body before spiritual body is a feature of our creator's rightness this is a divine pattern that manifests itself in a variety of applications the key phrase in this consideration is how be it that was not first which is spiritual but that which is natural, and afterward, that which is spiritual. Death precedes life. This divine principle is contradicted by the popular false doctrine promoted by paganized Christianity of the immortality of the soul, that life precedes death. This was a serpent lie telling Eve that she would not really die just because she ate the fruit from the forbidden tree, that false doctrine declares that God lied and that the serpent told the truth, that we don't really die because we contradict God's righteousness, it is inappropriately promoted that we start our lives as immortals, trapped in a mortal shell of a body subject to death, promoting Exactly the opposite understanding that Paul insists on, that natural precedes spiritual and death precedes life. Death is not the conduit from suffering humanity to eternal bliss. Death is the righteous judgment of our Creator. the introduction of that first contradiction of his righteousness into a previously very good creative order. This foundational understanding about death being the righteous judgment of God for that first sin is what enables a greater understanding of quite a number of other scriptural truths and divine motivations and timing issues in the unfolding plan of our Creator if we get this issue wrong or or don't care about the integrity of that truth then we start a domino effect in misunderstanding more and more and more of the features of god's righteousness with this understanding of death preceding life in the divine equation we can have more confidence in the judgment timing issue that Paul reports to the Thessalonians. That Christ will already have the dead with him when he comes for us. And that the living will not precede the dead to judgment. But that understanding of two separate stages in the judgment procedure raises another question. We do have a pretty good idea when the judgment will take place. Where, I'm sorry, where, oh, we do have a pretty good idea where the judgment will take place. It's often understood that the judgment will take place at Sinai, where God's kingdom was first initiated. This understanding is often based on the parallel prophecies in Deut- Deuteronomy 33, Psalm 68, Habakkuk 3, which depict the saints leaving the Sinai area to execute judgment on the nations and to face the Gogian invaders at Jerusalem. The actual geographic location of the judgment is not our consideration at the moment. We will get to that, and the highly appropriate Sinai location for our final judgment. Uh, Personally, I expect Jerusalem will actually be the geographic location for the last judgment of God, for the second set of saints in that eighth divine day, after the conclusion of the millennial kingdom, but but again, the reasoning for that is scheduled for another class. But the question uh, that I see in relation to the dead preceding the living to judgment is how this will or, <laughs> or possibly is currently being hidden from ourselves and the rest of the world. If There were hundreds of millions of people gathered somewhere for a judgment procedure, even as remote as a a location as Sinai. How could this be hidden from the rest of the world? That gathering at Sinai was not even hidden the first time it happened under Moses. When Moses was pleading for God to spare the nation for their cowardly rejection of the promised land, he declared that the nations had already heard of the fame of Yahweh and that his cloud and pyre filler, fire pillars uh, hovered over the tabernacle day and night. The nations were already aware of this. And yet this had only been a couple of years from the time they escaped Egypt. Now this is going to be a very large group at the judgment it's very conceivable that there were over a billion people on the earth prior to the flood. And there's no mention at all of any doctrinal apostasy prior to the flood, only a behavioral apostasy. The first record of a doctrinal apostasy is after the flood, beginning at Babel, better known as Babylon. So how could a far larger group more people than the than the population of the entire United States, and quite probably as the entire country of India, the second largest national population in the world today. How could so many people remain hidden from the rest of the world for the judgment procedure to continue without interruption? It isn't really the issue that international travel is very limited today due to the global pandemic, that that would not stop journalists. And it certainly would not stop the U.S. military wanting to know why hundreds of millions and possibly over a billion unaccounted for people just show up on the earth all of a sudden. Because our military surveillance satellites satellites can read the text from a book from 22,000 miles above us. But Jesus has already used a capacity to hide in plain sight. He did this more than once during his ministry. He appears to have done this at the beginning of his ministry, at Nazareth. He insulted the men in the Nazareth synagogue so severely that they attacked him, pushing and dragging him out to the cliff that Nazareth is built on, intending to throw him to his death. But as they were about to kill him, he simply passed through the middle of them, escaping and walking to Capernaum. We read about this in Luke chapter 4. We read, but I tell you, and this is Jesus speaking to the um, brethren in the Ecclesia at Nazareth, the synagogue. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land, but unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him into the brow of the hill wherein their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way, and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. So we have a murderous mob of angry men with the intention of killing Jesus for his insults, but he simply walks through the middle of them, escapes all their grasps and shoving. Exactly how did he do that? Now, this was after his baptism, after being awarded the power of the Holy Spirit without measure. He certainly had the capacity to all of a sudden be unrecognizable, as he did with his two disciples who walked with him on the road to Emmaus late on Saturday afternoon after his resurrection back to mortality. Jesus somehow escaped, while in plain sight, of those wanting to harm him on several occasions. We see this also in John 8, after Jesus declares that he's greater than Abraham ever was. We read in John chapter 8 and verse 59, They took up, then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed on. And we see this same effect again in John 10, when men pick up stones to stone Jesus to death for saying that he and his father are one. Jesus is again at the temple on Solomon's porch. Now this is wide out in the open. And they try to take Jesus, but somehow in in plain sight, he simply leaves. We read in John 10, beginning with verse 39, Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand and went away again. This capacity of Jesus to escape in plain sight is described in John 12, again, in this way. Uh, These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. He hid himself in some way from them. Uh, this was just before Passover. He'd ridden into Jerusalem triumphantly to cries of, Hosanna, son of David, save us now, son of David. Everyone was looking for him. But he hid himself from them, and simply walked away. Uh, Jesus didn't do this when they came to arrest him late on Passover evening, or during his trial before the Jewish leaders, or when the Roman soldiers mocked him, or when his hands and feet were nailed to the cross. Jesus did not hide himself during these events because it was the divinely appointed time for his sacrificial death. But three days later, Jesus uses this capacity to be seen without being recognized and even to disappear as he walked and spoke with Cleopas and another of his disciples on the road to Emmaus late on that Sabbath day, that third day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the day after the raw grain fruits had been waved to heaven as prescribed by God in kingdom law. In Luke 24, we read, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs, in other words, about seven and a half miles. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were holden that they should not know him now jesus uses his capacity to vanish a short while later when they have that bread and wine in verse 30 it says and it came to pass as he sat at meat with them he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave to them and their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight about a couple hours later early sunday night just after the Sabbath ended, and just after that first meal of every day in the Jewish life, that evening meal of the disciples, Jesus does this again, but in the reverse. The two disciples had hurried back from Emmaus to Jerusalem, again about seven and a half miles, probably taking about two hours, or possibly a little less, depending on how quickly they traveled. Jesus suddenly appears to everyone in a locked room, We read in Luke chapter 24. And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you as for the timing of this event being long before sunday morning that's that's easily proven by referencing the same miraculous appearance in john's account we read in in john chapter uh, 20 verse 19 then the same day at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the jews Came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed them unto them his hands and his side. We're told that when Jesus suddenly revealed himself to the disciples, saying, Peace be unto you, and showing them the marks in his hands and feet, then this was the evening of the first day of the week, meaning Sunday. Now, the evening was always the very beginning of any Jewish day. They patterned their days after God's creation pattern, where we read that the evening and the morning were the first day, the evening and the morning were the second day, etc., etc. The Jewish day began at sunset with evening and the morning following, darkness preceding light each day in the same divine pattern that we just reviewed of death preceding life. Darkness is often identified with death in Scripture, just as light is identified with life. So, this miraculous sudden appearance of Jesus was just a short while after the Sabbath sunset, long before Sunday morning, and this even had followed the late afternoon Saturday walk to and back from. Emmaus. I'm sure we remember the servant of Elisha, who was understandably frightened by the Syrian army surrounding the city of Dothan to capture the prophet that he served. Elisha asked God to let his servant see what was hidden from everyone else's sight. Elisha was surrounded by chariots and horses of fire. Elisha's servant and the Syrians did not see this, but they were there. Then notice how Elisha blinds the entire army and leads them right into Israel's capital city of Samaria. The Syrians' sense of presence was completely altered. The prophet finally opened their eyes, and they are completely at the mercy of those that they had wanted to attack and defeat. That must have been very confusing for them. But our point is recognizing that capacity of Jesus to suddenly appear and suddenly disappear. And God's demonstrated capacity to alter the capacity of even an army to recognize reality, to limit their powers of perception. If Jesus wants to have the hundreds of millions of those accountable to judgment, having been resurrected to mortality for judgment, to be invisible from the rest of the world, (laughs) that's an easy task for him. And it isn't like he and his father haven't done this before. The point is that Jesus can already be back judging the dead. Our comfort is that despite the dead preceding us, the faithful will all be immortalized together. We will all join our Messiah in the air and the cloud, and so shall we be with him forever. So, to shift gears a little bit, for a long time now, the enlightened community has been told by teaching, leading brethren, that the judgment should be taking about a period of 10 years. That may or may not be true, um, but there is some precedent for this. But since there's so much evidence for the second immortalization of the three in the Creator's plan to be experienced in two divine days, 2,000 years after the first, that would place this immortalization event in the year. 2030, 10 years from now. If it actually will take 10 years for judgment, then that means Christ will have to return this year. Now, that may or may not happen. But even if he does that, it doesn't mean we will be immediately taken to the judgment because the dead will precede the living. But we don't know what the time differential uh, may be when the living are taken for judgment. The precedent for presuming a ten year period from the resurrection to mortality for the many accountable to the vindication of God's righteousness preceding judgment to the resurrection to immortality for the few who will be chosen is the difference between the high Sabbath on the first day of the seventh month, with its trumpet blasts, to the 10th day of the seventh much, month, which was the day of atonement. We read this in Leviticus 23, we, we read, and the Yahweh spake to Moses saying, speak unto the children of Israel, saying, in the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall you have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, and holy convocation, you shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of this seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. The trumpets were blown on the first day of the seventh month, which was appointed to be a high sabbath. Like all high Sabbaths, it didn't matter what day of the week that first day of the seventh month happened to fall on, it automatically became a high Sabbath, just like 10 days later on the Day of Atonement. This is the timing relationship that sets the precedent for a possible, maybe even probable, 10 years from that first day of the seventh month with the blowing of trumpets to the actual Day of Atonement representing the Term of judgment before immortalization. Uh, these those those three rituals on the Day of Atonement in the Most Holy Chamber shadow prophesy of the three immortalizations in the Creator's plan. So the question should be why would we identify the first day of the seventh month with the resurrection to judgment? The only significant action on that day would be the trumpets being sounded, as we just read in Leviticus 23. It was a memorial of blowing trumpets. Well, God mandated that two silver trumpets should be made from a single piece of silver, somewhat like how Adam and Eve were made. But the second, Eve, was made from the first, which was Adam. Uh, This is actually one of the features of God's righteousness that is demonstrated in one of the four ecclesial age rituals, the head coverings, during any prayer to God. Sisters are required to always cover their heads during any prayer, and brethren are forbidden to ever have their heads covered during any prayer in which they participate. Paul explains why this gender-based ritual of head covering or uncovering was uh, during prayer or during prophesying was mandated in 1 Corinthians 11. We read, for the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. So just like Adam and Eve, these two silver trumpets had to be made from the same piece of silver. A silver is a scriptural symbol of redemption due to that at uh, that half-shekel census tax that was required when the men of war were counted for the purpose of ransoming or redeeming those being counted. We read in Exodus chapter 30, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, When you take the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then you shall give every man a ransom for his soul, his life, unto the Lord. When you number them, that there be no plague among them, when you number them, this they shall give. Everyone that passes among them that are numbered, half a shekel. After the shekel of the sanctuary, a shekel is 20 giras, and half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. This this silver um, from this half shekel was used for the foundation of the tabernacle. Supporting each board, there were two silver sockets, similar to the two silver trumpets. We also remember the instruction of Jesus to Peter to take up the first fish that he gets from the sea, and there'll be a single coin in its mouth to pay the tax for both Peter and Jesus, indicating it was a silver shekel, which would be the tax expense for two people. This was redemption out of the mouth of a fish, paralleling the sign of the prophet Jonah that Jesus referenced for his three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Like the silver, the death of Jesus redeemed us. We have been reconciled by his death and hope to be saved by his life, as we reviewed countless times in Romans 5. These trumpets were blown for different reasons. But one significant reason was to assemble the enlightened community to the tabernacle to stand before God. We read in Numbers 10, uh, beginning verse 1. Yahweh spake to Moses, saying, Make two trumpets of silver, of a whole piece shalt thou make them, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeying of the camps. And when they shall blow with them, all the assembly uh, shall assemble themselves to you at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And if they blow with one trumpet, then the princes, which are the heads of the thousands of Israel, shall gather themselves unto you. Well, this is the context we're addressing. The timing of the first call to resurrection the trumpet call of the enlightened community to appear before god but please note there were two trumpets uh, two trumpet calls for the entire community the first call would be for simply the leaders of the enlightened community the heads the princes but blowing blowing both of the trumpets would call the entire assembly Somewhat like the suggestion that those called to appear before Christ for judgment will come in two stages. First the dead, those that we have learned from in the Enlightened Community, and then the living. This trumpeting in relation to the call for the dead to rise, is referenced, referenced not just in 1 Corinthians 15 that we just uh, reviewed, but also in First Thessalonians that we reviewed last week. In First Thessalonians uh, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 6, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. So we have a trumpet blast associated with the call of Christ for the dead to rise and appear before him now let's let's add another consideration a little more depth to this equation that adds another application to the patterns that we examined... Um, I think it was class three, maybe it was class four, that demonstrates that the second immortalization event in God's plan is scheduled for two divine days, 2,000 years after the first. Now, this is gonna be the seventh example in this pattern as we gave six previously. And this example does embrace the trumpet blast and the gathering together of the enlightened community before God at Mount Sinai just like we expect the enlightened community to do for judgment. We read in Exodus 19, which is where the, the covenant was made. The covenant is offered to Israel through Moses. They say yes, and God sets conditions for confirming this covenant. So Exodus 19, picking up at verse 10. Yahweh said to Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day. For the third day, the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And you shall set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you go not up to the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever touches the mount shall be surely put to death. There shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. And dropping down to verse 16. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at another part of the mount. This is the exact same timing language that we reviewed in Hosea 6 in relation to the time stamp for that second resurrection. Hosea said that that healing, that binding up, that raising up, and living in the sight of God would be after two days and also on the third day. Just like these divine directions, for confirming the covenant with God at Mount Sinai. Another interesting parallel would be abstaining from touching the mountain to avoid suffering a death sentence. That was the case in the Garden of Eden, at least according to Eve. She testifies in her innocence uh, to the serpent that Adam and she were warned not to even touch The forbidden tree or they would die and this was also the pattern the touch pattern in being death defiled by touching the dead and having to leave the entire the enlightened community for seven days and participate in two sin offering procedures before they could return it's also like the contagious feature of the law of divine uncleanness which was passed by touch with the clean person or article being touched by the unclean becoming a new uncleanness host capable of defiling another by touch, just as we see currently with the global pandemic. The primary issues in this consideration are that the enlightened community is called by the trumpet to come to God at Sinai to confirm the covenant after two complete days and on the third day, in the morning. Therefore, there are precedents that suggest the judgment may last ten years. Since there is a wealth of evidence identifying 2030 as the year for the immortalization of the saints, this ten-year judgment suggestion places that resurrection of the dead for judgment as being this current year. But let's not presume the living will be called to the judgment at the same time as the dead. Like Paul said, the dead precede the living according to the divine principle and also according to the two separate silver trumpet blasts to call the enlightened community to come to the tabernacle before the presence of God in the cloud. Now due to the new format, uh, we began with this class of inviting questions at three separate points during the presentation. Uh, we've not been able to cover as much of the notes as in the past. Uh, the live class is presented each Thursday evening at 7. PM, which is minus five Greenwich mean time, which is New York time this recording here is generated separately from the same notes uh, the next class in this series will address the feature of our creator's righteousness concerning the degree of love that saves us as opposed to the degree of love that condemns us in relation to christ's judgment and understanding god's righteousness anyone is welcome to join on Thursday evening or whatever, whatever day and time your, your, uh, uh, your time may be anywhere in the world. Simply email me at the address on the screen. I'll be happy to send you the logon link to join the class.